Fox Money starts right now, live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Mark Tepper, Karen Feinerman, and Brian Kelly. Tonight on Fast, the market's selling off today, but top strategist Tony Dwyer says don't stop buying stocks. He will explain why he thinks this bull run still has legs. Plus, Fang bites back. The group holding up well in today's carnage into Wall Street is betting this trade still has a lot of fight left in it. We've got the details. But first, we start off with today's market sell-off. The Dow down 400 points at the lows of the session, having one of its worst sessions of the year, despite the U.S. and China reportedly inching closer to a deal. And it looks like bears are striking back. The S&P 500 still up 11% this year, surging back from December lows, but failing at the key 2800 level for the fourth time since the market high. So this is one of the few sell-offs we've seen this year. Should you be buying this dip? Is there more pain ahead, Tim? Well, you got to give the bears some food, Mel. I mean, let's face <laughs> it. I, to, to say this is a worrisome day for me is a total overstatement. I realize, though, if you want to believe that you're selling the fact on a trade deal and you see a market struggling at 2800 it's easy to say, hey, you know what, maybe this is all we got. If you look at volatility today, you actually had the biggest vol move intraday than you've had since January 4th, really when we didn't think this was going to go a lot higher. Uh, my view is people looked at that construction spending uh, number that was out this morning on a week when we've got, look, we've got a ton of macro out this week. We've got the ECB on Thursday in a policy meeting. We've got the Fed on Friday talking about money in you know, a monetary normalization. And I know we've gotten everything we can out of the Fed. Uh, I think markets are worried about growth. Uh, I think that's what today is. It's Monday. Uh, I'm not losing any sleep right now. Does this give us any sort of belief that trade is either going to be an upside catalyst or a sell the news event? I think it's a sell. I think today is it told you it's a sell the news event, right? It doesn't mean that we have to go all the way down to the but I think we've priced in a lot of good news, right? S&P up 11.5% roughly year to date. We've seen economic data actually declining a bit, coming in the surprises by the City Economic Surprise Index. That's now negative, meaning the surprises have been to the downside. So I think the market got ahead of itself a bit. We priced in trade. We priced in the Fed not raising rates anymore this week. And so it's time to take a break. It's probably going to take a little bit of time. We've had two months of a rally. It's probably going to take a month or so. Maybe it's sideways action to down to feed the bears. as But the uh, trend is upward. So you're medium, still in your bull suit. Medium term, still bullish, yeah, well, short term right. bears. <laughs> right. Spoken yeah. from a guy in a bull suit. Yeah, right. Karen. Yeah, I mean, I think as much what Brian's saying, I think a lot of it is already priced in. I thought that we came back off of the lows. I mean, that was a pretty big rally off of the lows. I think, uh, you know, I'm long. I do think we'll get a trade deal, but I don't know if you saw my performance on the closing bell. Stella. Yes. Ooh, but what I was saying is the market is pricing in, you know, buy a rumor, sell the news, but it isn't pricing in a hiccup in this deal. And they keep saying we're on track, we're more on track, we're even more on track. It wouldn't be surprising just seeing how the Trump administration negotiates if we did see a hiccup in this deal, and the market will be lower than it is now if that What's happens. What's a hiccup is something and to the, sign at Mar-a-Lago at the end of March, right? I mean, right. I, I don't know. I don't know what the market considers a hiccup or a deal or what. Well, I mean, at this point, I think, you know, a, a, obviously a trade deal is being priced in. But the question becomes, is it going to be a good deal or just an okay deal? Um, and, you know, quite frankly, it, it's, it's okay for the market to take a breather. I mean, this has been a V-shaped recovery. It's been a very, very fast recovery over the course of the last two months. Yeah, we're up 11.5% year to date, but we're also up 20% off the Christmas Eve lows. Um, and when we look at the different uh, indicators that we watch, nothing is signaling to us that there's a recession until at least the second half of 2020, maybe even 2021, as long as the Fed stays on pause. So, um, you know, we think the market definitely has plenty of upside from here. Uh, the quandary, though, for a lot of investors is no recession doesn't necessarily mean equity performance. Right. I mean, that's right. what we saw yeah. last year, right? It, it, it's a very difficult year. No recession. 
It does, although if you want to look at where the S&P was going, even into obviously the highs that we hit in September before the market really started to, uh, to get concerned about the trade deal, um, it was happening with at least slower spending, slower capex, some expectation that actually the world was slowing down, yet equities were moving higher. I think, I think we haven't entirely recalibrated our expectations on earnings growth, but the reality is I don't think people are expecting earnings growth anywhere near the 7% we started uh, the year. I think that's bullish for the market. But more importantly, I think this is where you go after sectors right now that have continued to defy either uh, what fun- people think are fundamentals, defy logic, or defy basically gravity. Um, in the case of energy, you keep buying it. Look at those numbers you had out of OPEC in terms of production. It looks like OPEC, first of all, those are four-and-a-half-year lows in terms of OPEC production last month. I think it's still the most shorted sector out there. It's not going to be something that necessarily you hang your hat of the market on, but there's places to invest. I also think that the industrials continue to get a reprieve, and I would be buying Europe, which is massively underperformed. So Tim brought up energy, which I think is a great point, because the dip you want to buy is when oil goes higher, people start worrying about, wait a second, the Fed's got to come back in, because we've got inflation, because energy prices are rising, and maybe the economic news isn't that good, and the trade deal isn't as good as we thought. That's the dip you want to buy, not this particular dip. And the reason why is all those things will ultimately get fixed. The Fed will be on the sidelines. The trade deal will get something done there. And OPEC, it's fine to have high oil prices, but at some point they price their customers out of the market and they'll lay off. So I agree. I think you can buy energy here, but nothing else until you get that real negative dip. Are you buying right here? Any, I'm not right here. Well, S&P puts, um, uh, that would be the only thing. I like what I own. I think it, there is some risk if we don't see a deal. But I do think we'll see a deal. The other thing, though, is even if we see inflation, I don't think the Fed's going to do anything. You know, they talked about being patient, which is different than being data dependent. Data dependent is we'll react to the data. Patient, in my view, is we won't react to the data. So I'm not afraid of inflation. Right. So I I, I like a lot of these software companies that have pulled back. So we saw, you know, Salesforce ahead of earnings pull back. And these software companies in particular, they they really help businesses to become more efficient, more profitable. And at this stage of the game, you know, late cycle, that's what businesses want to do. They want to be more efficient. They want to be more profitable. And these software companies, most of them are generating recurring revenues. And there's no revenue better than a recurring revenue. Are you concerned about their guidance for the first quarter, which is what's taking the stock down? Yeah, but guidance has been low pretty much across the board. I mean, you look at just about every single company in the S&P 500. I mean, all, all of guidance has been pretty conservative this quarter. Mark, are you worried, though, that that some of these higher multiple stocks, um, like software companies, have been the ones that have been most in the kind of the target Mm -hmm. of the market that has been comfortable buying value, frankly? And I, I think that, to me, is a safer spot. Yeah, so, um, I mean, the, the multiples are high, right? So, um, but not all companies are valued the same. It's not always about a, a P.E. multiple, as an example. There's, there's specific value drivers that can help a company to command a premium multiple, whether it is recurring revenues or stickiness of their customers. Those are all justifications for a higher multiple. Let me just push back as a value-oriented. So one of the metrics is growth, right, mm-hmm. and accelerating growth, or not, not flat growth or not declining the growth. The delta on right. right. And so Salesforce, which was put a great numbers and the guidance is really good also. Mm-hmm. But if you don't see an acceleration of growth, it seems to be priced for that. Mm-hmm. And is, you know, is it getting too rich? And let, and let me push back on that. So um, when we look at uh, companies in general, when a recession hits us, a lot of those companies are going to watch their revenues fall. In my opinion, Salesforce 
I mean, that's going to be one of the last expenses a business is going to cut because it helps them to run the engine of their business. It helps them to be efficient. It helps them to be more profitable. So I think there's an element there that, that really helps them to get that higher uh, valuation because their recession or their, their revenues are essentially, in my opinion, close to being recession. How much do you want? Sold to you. <laughs> so it's in the short term. I, I mean, I think these are going to get killed if you have, a, an, I'm calling it an inflation scare. I want to be careful that I'm not saying there's going to be massive inflation. I'm saying we get oil going higher. You get a Fed that's going to be worried about inflation, a market that's worried about inflation. High multiple stocks will get killed in that environment. All right, let's move on here. Our next guest says, don't fear the sell-off. Keep buying stocks. Let's bring in Tony Dwyer, Chief Market Strategist at Canaccord Genuity. Tony, welcome to you. Thanks for having me. Um, we were just showing this chart of the S&P 500 and the trouble it's had around 2800. Why are you so confident that it's time to buy stocks, to keep buying well, stocks? You know, I, I also agree that there's a possibility that you could have a little bit of a pullback, but it really what you have to do is put it in historical perspective. When you have the kind of breadth thrust that we've had, so about two weeks ago, you registered 92% of stocks in the S&P above the 50-day moving average, and that sounds real technical, and it is. But when that's happened in the past, you've always had a gain over the next six to 12 months with a minimum of 9% at some point between six and 12 months. But that I don't think is the biggest point, Mel. I think the biggest point is what's the pullback after it happens? Because obviously to have that kind of an extreme, you've had a hell of a run. So what's the initial like, oh my goodness, what, boom. It's a median 1% drop. Even the two bigger ones in 2010 and 2013 of seven and 4% respectively, came back within the next two months and made money. So it's not that you're just going to go straight up. You want to know what to, like we covered on the last show when I came back to the set, you want to know that the pullback can be minimal so that you can actually buy it instead of fear it. So basically the risk reward is there given the average performance when you have this breath up versus the, right. the median downside that and you've seen. Let's throw a little fundamental stuff into it, too. Yeah. Like every, The biggest fear I hear from institutional investors is, well, earnings estimates are coming down and the economy is slowing. How can the market go up or you pay more for the market when you have such decelerating earnings growth and estimates are coming down? Well, 2016, do. you started in, in the year on January 1st of 2016 with S&P operating profit expectations of 7.6%. By the end of the year, it was 0.6%, and obviously the market went up, and then it went up 20% the year after that. So I think we have to be careful to be, you know, people get negative because the economy's too hot and the Fed's going to be tight, and then they get negative because the economy's too soft and earnings are coming down. It's all about the Fed. You like sectors, financials, industrials, and information technology. We were having a debate here on the desk, and, and I think people are having this debate every day. Growth versus value. You can find growth and you can find value in each of these sectors, basically, Tony. That's right. So what's your tilt well, I've with been, this market view? I mean, is it, is, it, is it obviously growth? It's offense versus defense. Okay. I think we play offense versus. And I actually, I think you could have a trade, an upside trade, and some of the materials and energy names, to Timmy's point earlier. And here's why. Every, if you look at any purchasing manager index globally, they're a disaster. They're all coming down. However, if you look at the sequential data, they're getting a little bounce. They're inflecting off the low. It's almost the opposite of what happened in November of 2017 when you were at a huge peak. You were surprising to the upside on the Citigroup Economic Surprise Index. That was the time to be a seller of those deep cyclicals. Kind of the reverse is happening here. Uh, Korea, Taiwan, PMIs last night, three and a half year lows. So uh, I talked about it's a massive week for, for macro, whether it's Fed, ECB, payrolls Friday. Yep. Uh, to your credit, you're a guy that comes on the show and is very consistent. I, I love that. Um, 
What could happen this week to change your view with so much macro? Is there anything that would change that? The only thing would be if you get some kind of sign that the Fed is going to be super hawkish. What scared me in October, and we did a show on the correction Basically, in very early nothing. October. I mean, it's it's the there's no sign because the Fed's yeah. not going to come out and Correct. be super hawkish after being super dovish. Correct. Like, I, I get the permable mantra, and I have been for 10 years. I've been horrifically wrong three times with three declines of over 15 percent. But they've proven to be very temporary, like the two-month one we just had, because the Fed is okay, because credit is okay. The Barclays total, uh, high-yield total return index is at a record high. You know, it, it, it changed that fast. You're getting a slight re-steepening of the 210 yield curve, and banks are lending. So you don't need to see anything from the ECB, or what are you expecting? And if the ECB, Karen, if the ECB came any kind of indication that they are getting tighter versus easier with the PMIs, you would wonder if it's 2011 again. Save they us were all. On, yeah. they were Save all, us all. Seriously, you know, yeah. seriously, it, it's like bananas if they if they get any kind of tightening. I think really the only thing that investors truly have to worry about from a time perspective that I'm involved with the intermediate term is if you get what you got the end of September and early October a Fed policy mistake and a communications error on the back of it. Right. Tony, good to see you. Great. Have a safe trip. You're, Thank you very off, much, right? Mel. Yep. Tony Dwyer, Canaccord. I mean, I, I'm with Tony. In a Fed-driven market, which we've had for the last 10 years, you have to be long and bullish until they decide that they're going to be hawkish. And so you know, we, what we saw is a massive reversal in the Fed. I do think they're in the midst of a policy change, trying to describe how they're going to change that policy. And that could create some scare, could create some concern. They haven't done a great job communicating yet. Um, but short of that, until they actually have to raise rates, until we get some reason for them to really have to go on a rate tightening cycle, I think you buy the really scary dips. It was amazing that President Trump was criticizing Jerome Powell even after this pivot, went, right? I, I, at yeah, CPAC, went, right? right? <laughs> like, you're going to go after the guy now? And it's, and it's all, he's been all about being patient recently, right? right? Yeah. I mean, it's patient, patient, patient. It's like a drinking game talks, now. Right. <laughs> orange juice, folks at home. Drinking orange. Yeah, <laughs> I, I tell you what, the, the trades that I think continue to work. So we talked about energy. Remember, China over the weekend also said they're going to have a 90 billion VAT, uh, so basically a tax cut, another one. Um, I, I think the rest of the world, the data points for now have actually, you're, you're seeing some basing. Uh, and I think we have a lot of data out this week, as I talked about. But I, I think the EM trade continues to work. The energy trade continues to work. The ag commodities trade continues to work. Remember, if we get a little inflation, that's good for these equities, not bad. All right, still ahead. Healthcare under attack. It is the worst performing sector today and so far this year as everything from regulation to the upcoming election hits the stocks. Is this sector becoming a no-touch? Plus, check out shares of Salesforce sinking after hours of cloud giant reporting earnings moments ago. We'll tell you what the CEO just told Jim Cramer. And later, Fang bites back. The stocks are holding up despite today's sell-off. We'll tell you why Wall Street thinks this trade still has a lot of fight left in it. We're live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money Healthcare, the worst performing sector today and so far this year as a number of headlines rock the space. Drug provider Eli Lilly hit an all-time high this morning after announcing a half-price version of its most popular insulin drug, Humalog. But that stock ended the day down a percent. Remember, back in February, two senators had sent a letter to Eli Lilly as they began an investigation into insulin prices. And specifically, they singled out Humalog in the price increases there. Also, dialysis providers in the spotlight today and reports that the 
the Trump administration is looking to cut down on costs by turning away from more clinic-based treatments for kidney disease patients, patients to home dialysis. And all this is Washington debates a Medicare for All plan. House Democrats unveiled it last week, and despite the cost of the program undermining its initial popularity, it's been weighing on a number of managed care stocks like United Health and Cigna. So are all of these unknowns turning this sector, healthcare, into a no-touch, BK. Yeah, it is for BK. And add in there that Purdue Farmer over there report that they're going to possibly file for bankruptcy to protect themselves from the OxyContin lawsuits. That hit Mallinckrodt. That hit Endopharma today. So from every single angle, these stocks are getting hit. I think it's going to be very difficult for many pharmaceutical companies to raise prices given the political environment. And then adding on to that, the only thing they can really do to grow is probably buy some of these more speculative biotech companies. So for me, until the dust settles here, it is an absolute no touch. This obviously was a haven, a, a safe, safe place last yeah. year. This year, not so much. Yeah, so I would, be, uh, I would be sticking with the companies that have a more diverse revenue base, like Merck. So take Merck as an example. Uh, 75% of their revenues are coming from classic biopharma, but 25% comes from vaccines and animal health. Uh, beyond that, they're, they've, you know, they've got a great pipeline. They're number one in, in phase three right now, phase three trials. Um, and Keytruda you know, is, is one of the, the biggest, baddest uh, immuno-oncology drugs out there, and, and it's expanding right now. So I think you have to be selective. Well, I, I think if you look at the sector also, there's, there's names like Lilly, which, which has been you know, a monster. I mean, Lilly's moved 75% off the lows basically all the way back to last summer. So it's not as if you know, these stocks haven't had a good run and in many cases relative to themselves trade somewhat expensive. I think healthcare has continued to be, you know, if it was 2016 like that market that Tony was talking about, I'm not, I know we've good by the guest, by the way, I'm not bringing and it he's back. Not oh, he's, he's not here. I mean, he's literally gone. Okay. gone. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, but the point is that in 2016, what were the places that outperformed, healthcare outperformed? Because you had EPA growth of 20 to 25 percent across the sector. I actually think that people have discounted a lot of that and there's been a major run. Um, I think you can pause. I'm a little afraid of any of the uh, pharmacy benefits managers. I just think that is just coming under, you know, such scrutiny and anything that's been that not transparent Right? Is, it you can't go be on the street and ask somebody what a pharmacy benefit manager is, and they probably say the guy who jacks up the causes the <laughs> prices to be jacked up. You know, it's become that mainstream at this point. So you know, that would be a name like CVS, which also I think got the double whammy of uh, if Amazon is going into more stores that do have beauty care and health. You know, that's not good for CVS. Uh, you know, Express Scripts merging with Cigna. I, those are. I, I'm afraid of that business. I don't want to own that business. So it's not. No this, I mean, you're also in the hospital providers, right? Well, I, no, I'm care. in Anthem. I've been okay. in Anthem for a while. I, I have mixed feelings about it. I think I've just sort of fallen in love with it because it's worked. And But that's a terrible, terrible, it's a PSA. That's a terrible reason to own a company. Don't fall in love? No. And you're still in it. But you're still in it. <laughs> I am still in it. But you're warning the public about do, making the same mistake that you're currently making. Yeah, it's like, you know, when of... someone's, you know, really has a drug problem and says, don't start taking drugs. It's terrible for you. That's, <laughs> you need an yeah, intervention. Yeah, fall in love maybe. with the stock. <laughs> for more on healthcare and biotech stocks, head on over to etfedge.cnbc.com. I'm Melissa Lee. You're watching Fast Money on CNBC. First in business worldwide, here's what else is coming up on Fast. It's the running of the Fang Bulls. Wall Street is going full bull on the beloved Fang stocks. We'll tell you why some of the top analysts on the street think this trade has more bite. Plus, where's your car, dude? Dude, where's my car? Well, a lot more people might be asking that question, dude. We'll tell you why the auto stocks could be facing a major roadblock. And it's not for the reason you think. There's much more Fast Money right after this. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Amazon on the rise following a big upgrade upgrade from Evercore today. This is the majority of the Fang names also holding strong amid the sell-off in the broader markets. For more, let's go to Bob Pisani down at the New York Stock Exchange. Hey, Bob. Hello, Melissa. Good to see you. As always, Amazon had another strong day, up more than 1% on heavy volume as Evercore ISI upped its price target to $1,965. That's from $1,800. Also helping today, a Wall Street Journal report that the company was planning to open grocery stores that would be distinct from its Whole Foods brand. Now, Amazon is now back above Apple in second place for the largest U.S. companies by market capitalization with a value of $832 billion there. Fang stocks are having a great year, by the way, led by Netflix up 31%, huge move in January. Facebook up 27%, Amazon up 13%, and Apple and Alphabet both up about 11%. But many strategists think there's even more upside and that Fang will continue to outperform the rest of the market. Now, analysts have an average price target for Facebook of $195. That's almost 19% higher than its current price, $2,122 for Amazon. That's about 26% higher than the current price, $400 for Netflix. That's 14% above its current price, and $1,341 for Alphabet. That's 17% above its current price. These estimates are well above the average analyst price target of about $3,000 for the S&P 500 in 2019. That's only 7% above its current price. You see the FANG stocks way above the market averages. So why all this bullishness for FANG? Growth is still very tough to come by on a global level. And the one thing most of the FANG stocks do have is growth. When growth is very hard to come by, investors will pay up for growth, even if the prices drive companies into bizarre valuation levels, like the 60 times forward earnings multiple for Amazon, or even worse, 87 times 2019 earnings multiples for Netflix. Back to you, Melissa. All right, Bob. Thank you. Bob Pisani from the New York Stock Exchange. Bob was mentioning the high multiple stocks. Karen, you're in two stocks that could be argued are actually value stocks in FANG. Well, you're Facebook and, and Alphabet. Right. Right. Well, Facebook, as we know, has had its idiosyncratic, not totally just to them, actually, but I, I think it's still attractive. It's had a very nice bounce from the bottom. I think Alphabet is actually even more attractive. I don't know why it hasn't gotten more of a lift from from Lyft, from Waymo, from all the focus on autonomous driving. And the rest of their business is fantastic. What I mean, it's it's an extraordinary cash flow generator. My only my only beef with them is the lack of any significant buyback. Mm-hmm. What happens, though, when the markets, I mean, you're just scorching high multiple stocks. I was, but high multiple stocks without growth. That's the problem that you have. Uh-huh. Okay. So that's why I would like something like Amazon, where we're seeing a lot of growth. Google's kind of interesting. They got multiple levers to pull. Levers. Uh, yeah, levers. How about that's, levers? That's levers? British. Pull those <laughs> levers. Yeah. They can I'm be like, pulled. Levers, <laughs> leverage. That's what, that's what the British say. Uh, nonetheless, Amazon, I think, is the play here. It's got growth. I understand that they're very high multiple and people don't like that, but nobody's really cared about Amazon's P.E. for the last 10 years. There's a couple incidents here and there where we get worried about it, but they can they have levers that they can pull as well. Yeah, I'm going to take Amazon as well. So I'll agree with you on this one. Go. Unlike with and Salesforce. The levers, so, and the levers. Yeah, I'm going to take uh, Amazon. I mean, when we talk multiples of the four FANG stocks, they actually have the lowest price to sales, though. And really, the, the part of Amazon's business I'm most interested in is the cloud. Right now, it's only 11% of revenues, but it's growing at 40 to 50% per year. And what we expect is that cloud usage is going to double over the course of the next two to three years. There's more and more data. And in fact, 90% of the world's data 
has actually come from the last two years. So that's how like high growth this industry is. So I love Amazon here. By the way, if we're getting psyched on Fang right now, we should, you know, everyone at the start of the show should have been like pounding the table on the market. Because if this has all been happening without the participation of Fang largely outside of Facebook. Um, and people, MAGA. And, and, and the MAGA. Um, right. Bottom line is people should be loving this. Uh, let me, let me pound the table with Karen on Google. To me, this is the best combination of valuation. Look, the top line growth is still absolutely fine. YouTube is growing. Uh, I think it definitely mitigates the margin pressure. Uh, and I think there are buybacks coming. I, I think actually this is a stock with more levers to pull than anyone else. <laughs> For more on the markets and the best way to playing, play the FANG space, let's go off the charts with Ari Walt of Oppenheimer over at the Plasma. Ari, what are you looking at? Hi, Melissa. Well, let's start with the market here. We had a downtick today. Uh, I wouldn't read too much into it. Now, what is interesting about the move in the S&P 500, occurring at an important resistance level at about 28.15. That was the November peak. However, we think the emphasis should be on the big picture recovery that's taking place because of the very strong internal breadth readings that we're seeing. For instance, the percentage stocks on the NYSC above their 10-week moving average, that's about equivalent to a 50-day moving average, uh, recently topped above 85% for really the first time since March of 2016. And I think you can see similar behavior as we saw in that 2016 period, where after the strong run off the low, the market moved sideways for a few weeks to a few months ahead of that strong uptrend. I think that's what's at play. History would support that as well. Let's look at the forward returns based on that indicator, looking six months out on the S&P 500. First off, for any six-month period, the average gain is, is, is 6%, uh, excuse me, 4%. That's the horizontal line right here. Now, it is good to buy oversold. When you're buying, when there's very few stocks below their 50-day uh, uh, moving average, you tend to have above-average returns. But look at this. Returns are even stronger six months out when you're buying very strong overbought readings. When you get get to that 85% level. So history going back to 1967 would suggest that the breadth readings we're seeing historically followed by above average returns and the up cycle. I like Tim's point here. Not only are we seeing this strength, we're seeing it without some of the biggest stocks in the market. You know, for us, Amazon and Apple as well really haven't participated. Here's the Amazon's uh, chart. More or less has underperformed over the last five months. And now we're starting to see this decline become less bad it's building a base uh the it, it, it reversed its downtrend more recently it's also moved above its 100 day moving average that's the most latest data point i think as long as you're above 1600 the place for a breakout to the upside you still haven't completed the space i think you get it above 1770 amazon after that big run finally a tactical play again uh was also asked to chart netflix uh, here's one that's a little bit more extended off its 100-day average, but nonetheless has reversed its downtrend, has made higher highs. We like it for the long term. We think these high-growth companies do indeed lead the market higher in this low-growth world, and I think Netflix becomes attractive as you start getting down to 325. So you spoke about half of Fang being in a good spot, Ari. I mean, how about the other half of Fang, and if, and if they continue to stall? And then you can throw in, you know, Parts of Dan's MAGA trade, really the AGA of the MAGA, ex-Microsoft, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, he did create that acronym in particular. But, I mean, if we see this, so basically, if we see the stall of these stocks outside of the two that you've highlighted are in good spots chart-wise, can we see the markets actually go higher? 
Uh, uh, it's, it's more than just these two. I, I heard Karen's fundamental pitch on Alphabet. Yeah. The charts are aligned. 1150, you get a breakout there. That's a clear shot to 1300. Facebook is the one I'm a little bit, I think, needs more work to be done. I think it is in the process of the basing. Uh, but for the most part, it's FANG. It's the entire market. Very strong breath in the market here. All right. Ari, thank you. Ari Wald of Oppenheimer. Who likes what Ari is selling here? I like I when like he agreed with it. me, that part. Oh, which yeah. We all, I think we all agree. Actually. He, he threw us all yeah. ball, which was smart, by the way. <laughs> uh, no, look, I, I, I tell you what, on Netflix, this is a company that, that actually hit their all-time highs in June of 2018. Uh, is actually underperformed the S&P by 15%. So you know, you hear me like to talk negatively about Netflix because, uh, you know, I've been wrong uh, the stock a long time. But I, I tell you what, I think the valuation at some point, people have started to, to understand there's only so much growth you can price in there. And of all of them, that's the chart. And again, underperformed forming the S&P by 15% since last year. That's, I don't think people know that. Yeah. Uh, Facebook's the one that concerns me. So, uh, it, you know, on a valuation, from a valuation standpoint, it does look cheap. But my issue with Facebook is that they've really diluted their, their advertising platform. So they got rid of demographics, and it just makes it more and more difficult for businesses to get to the right consumer. That growth doesn't, the growth doesn't substantiate what you're saying, right? I mean, there's been, a, that was a massive quarter. Sure, you sure, think it, yes. It's to come and you think it's not priced in enough? No, I, so from a digital advertising standpoint, I like Google much, much better than Facebook. I think their platform is right, significantly better. Yes. So if I had to pick one or the, the other, yeah. The one thing I would say is the, the market can go sideways to down and Fang can rally. I mean, we've seen that. We've seen that. Ari just pointed out that we've had this kind of sideways action here, yet the market has ripped. So I think you could see rotation. We've seen multiple rotations. You see rotations out of some of the higher, the, uh, the stocks like the materials, healthcare that we saw today, those type of things. Getting out of that and maybe getting into these higher growth areas, you see the S&P go sideways to down and these stocks go up. All right. Still ahead. Check out shares of Salesforce. They're sinking after reporting earnings today. CEO Mark Benioff just spoke to uh, Mad Money's Jim Cramer. We'll bring you the comments. Plus, car trouble as monthly auto payments hit record highs. Interest rates on car loans are soaring. Is this the beginning of the auto apocalypse? We will explain when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Salesforce. The stock is lower in the after-hour session. Let's get to Aditi Roy for all the details. Hey, Aditi. Hi there, Melissa. Shares are sliding on a weaker-than-expected earnings and revenue forecast. Salesforce guided for Q1 revenue of $3.67 to $3.68 billion. Analysts were looking for $3.7 billion. The company's Q1 EPS forecast was 60 to 61 cents. The street's estimate, 63 cents. Salesforce full-year guidance was in line with expectations. In an exclusive interview with Mad Money, Chairman and CEO Mark Benioff telling Jim Cramer his outlook remains sunny. Here we are coming up on a year that we're going to do $16 billion in revenue. That far exceeds my expectation. I still have never been more excited about Salesforce than I am right now. And when I look at the short term, you know, I see $20 billion right around the quarter. I see $30 billion right around the quarter. In fact, we initiated a four-year guidance today, Jim, of 26 to $28 billion. During the call, co-CEO Keith Block also talked about the MuleSoft acquisition, something that analysts had been looking for. He said that the deal is creating value for customers like SunTrust and Unilever, adding that Salesforce has also hired an additional 450 MuleSoft employees in fiscal year 2019 and nearly tripled the MuleSoft architects driving customers' digital transformations. 
Melissa, back to you. Okay, Aditi, thank you, Aditi Roy. So Q1 falls short a little bit. Full year, um, they're sticking by so they can make it up in the next three quarters or so. Tim, what do you think? Yeah, look, I, I, I'm not surprised to see this move. I, the comp was ridiculous. I mean, that's the biggest issue. But, you know, everything you read, and, and a couple of the houses actually do a deep dive in terms of uh, uh, channel checks with their core partners, and, and people are very, very appreciative of this service and actually the demand to fulfill a lot of the underlying services I think they're barely able to fill, and that's a good thing. So demand to me for the product continues to be very strong. It's a valuation story. It's a comp story. Um, and I, I, I think there's, you know, the stock, you said this before, but not you, but I, I could have, someone could have said, uh, I don't see the stock doing a lot in the short run. I, I don't see a catalyst for it, but far from broken. You like it. So who is Salesforce winning at the expense of, in your view? Uh, they're winning at the expense of, I guess, just high, other high expenses within a business because the, the entire... Um, gist of Salesforce is just to increase the efficiency of a business. So I don't know if that is uh, employees or what it might be, but I mean, they are increasing the efficiency of businesses by just making uh, data more accessible. So it's not necessarily like an Oracle or a Right, some sort right. Of I mean, they're, they're, they're without a doubt the leader in CRM services right now. So the problem you have with Salesforce is it's the growth of the growth, which is a little kind of crazy Wall Street thing, but it's the slowest year on year growth since 2010. Wall Street was expecting just kind of going, just going hockey stick style and you're up 16% year to date so it's a stock that got ahead of itself. If you get some sort of a correction, you're going to get a chance to buy the stock. It's probably going to be closer to a 140 level than the 150 something it's trading at now. Where in software are you? Are you in Microsoft? I'm not in Microsoft okay. and I regret it terribly. It's been an excellent place <laughs> to be. I mean, and I look at something like Salesforce, what a great business they have. I just can't get comfortable with those metrics. It's just for somebody else. I certainly wouldn't short it, but I can't get long. Mm-hmm. Of course, don't want to, you don't want to miss uh, Jim Cramer's full interview with the CEO of Salesforce, Mark Benioff. That's at the top of the hour. Coming up, new cars breaking the bank for consumers as interest rates on loans soar to decade highs. We'll tell you what it means for the auto stocks. Plus, retail reeling today amid another busy week of earnings for the group. And there's one name traders are betting could plunge even more. We've got the details from Fast Money Returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. An auto apocalypse could be on the horizon as interest rates on car loans hit the highest level in a decade. Phil LeBose in Chicago with the details. Hey, Phil. Melissa, this shouldn't come as a huge surprise given what we've seen with really all interest rates in a variety of areas. Take a look at the data in terms of what's happened over the last five years with auto interest rates. Right now, the last month, February, it was 6.26%. Compare that with last year and compare that with five years ago, there has been a dramatic increase in auto loan interest rates. As a result, people are looking at annual auto sales and they're saying, is it possible that we will not see a fifth straight year with auto sales topping 17 million? By the way, most on Wall Street have forecasted the rate to come in between 16.5 and 16.8 million vehicles. And that's the reason why when you look at, let's just look at the Detroit three automakers. With the exception of General Motors, over the last year, these stocks really haven't done anything. And GM, by the way, it's only getting benefit because of its uh, collaboration or its uh, subsidiary, I should say, with cruise automation. People are saying, look, we think there's something to grow on there. They're not getting much credit for the fact that they plan to improve profitability later this year. And when you look at the auto dealer stocks, they are also suffering from the perception that we're at peak auto. And therefore, people are not going to be buying as many new vehicles. They totally discount the fact that these guys make the bulk of their profits either through service or through the sale of used vehicles. Oh, and by the way, when we're talking about used vehicles, even those stocks are under pressure. CarMax, Carvana, 
There's no love at all right now in the auto sector. Guys, the general feeling is that you have to see these guys manage profitability during a recession. And until that happens, I'm not sure these guys are going to get much credit. Really, General Motors is only getting credit because of its subsidiary crews and the potential there, Melissa. Otherwise, nobody has much love for these guys. But in terms, Phil, of why these rates are going higher, I mean, for mortgages, for instance, we haven't seen a huge rise at all. I mean, interest rates seem to be very, very contained. So is part of what's going on with auto rates uh, that delinquencies are jumping? I mean, what no, are there other factors it, 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 involved? Be, well, here? there's a couple of things here. One of the big factors is that automakers and auto dealers used to offer a lot more 0% financing, let's say two or three years ago, than they offer now far fewer offers for 0%. So as a result, when you look at the averages, they're moving higher. That's one of the factors that's there. Got it. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau uh, joining us from Chicago here. You two are in auto stocks. Are you concerned? My concern? No. I mean, when he said they're not getting a lot of love, that is certainly true. I mean, we've been talking about peak (laughs) autos for a while, and even though autos have, I believe, peaked, but GM still is really running their business very, very profitably. Nobody seems to care. It trades at under six times earnings, which to me is not a peak multiple for sure, right? And it has, I don't know, three, some maybe-ish dividend yield, maybe a little under that. No love, but I'm sticking with it. I think Mary Barr is doing an outstanding job. I don't think you can find an auto stock anywhere other than Tesla, which trades in its own stratosphere, that's not been trading at peak auto. I mean, look at the Europeans, look at the Americans. GM's gone nothing for five years. So, and, and, and frankly, we've been hearing about peak auto for two or three. So to the extent that people might have been starting to price that into GM for a few years, um, broken record, agree with Karen, 5.88 times, freshly updated 2019 numbers. They're going to make 675 a share. Uh, North America is kicking it. China is absolutely fine. GM Financial is going to make made $400 million last, last quarter. Uh, Europe is a mess, uh, but they're getting out of that business. Yeah, and Phil just right. talked about how can you navigate in a downward cycle. Right. I think GM's giving you everything you need. Where are you in the auto trade? So as far as autos go, I mean, as vehicles become less affordable, more people are going to opt to fix their own cars. So we like the auto parts retailers. So you look at O'Reilly, AutoZone, Advanced Auto Parts. You've seen great earnings out of these companies lately. And if you look back to July of 2007 until July of 2009, the S&P was down about 38% over the course of that time frame. O'Reilly was up 4% over that same span. The problem with the big automakers, they can't get out of their own way. And I think that has to do with the fact that this is an industry that is also being disrupted. We know that mobility is changing. People aren't buying. The buying habits of millennials are very different than they were in the past. So it's it's not to say you go and short GM and anything like that. They're at great valuations. It's just that what's the catalyst going forward? In terms of the interest rates going higher, we did see a slight, slight uptick in junk yields over bonds in the uh, December period when we had that stock market sell-off with consumer credit at all-time highs. At the margin, you're going to start to see some delinquencies. I don't think there's anything to worry about with autos. I'd be much more concerned about the fact that people don't want to buy three cars and have them sitting in their garage anymore. All right, coming up, Target shares up double digits this year, but one trader is betting the rally could unravel when it reports earnings tomorrow. We've got all the details. We're live at the NASDAQ and Times Square. Much more Fast Money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Take a look at shares of Target. Pretty much dead even with the XRT and the S&P 500 so far this year. But some traders think the company could miss the mark when it reports earnings tomorrow. Let's get out to Mike Cohen in San Francisco with the options action. Hey, Mike. 
Hi there. Yeah, so about halfway through the day today, we'd already seen about double the average daily options volume. By the end of the day, we saw actually over three times the average daily options volume. The high volume that we saw on the calls, some people might take that as being bullish, including some April 78 calls that we saw, but it wasn't necessarily. A lot of those calls were sold, and one of the trades that I was looking at that basically is taking a look at what options traders are thinking about for earnings was a purchase of the weekly 70 puts. We saw 1,300 of those trading for about $1.10. Buyers of those puts are betting that Target is going to fall below that $70 strike price by the amount that they paid. That indicates that the 6% implied move that we're seeing in the stock is going to be to the downside. And it's understandable when you take a look at the last eight quarters of earnings for Target. It has moved about 6%, and five of those eight quarters we've seen significant declines, averaging about a 4.5% move to the downside. So that probably explains some of that activity that we're seeing today. Yeah. Karen, you own the stock. I do own the stock. I mean, I remember last quarter the stock traded off sharply, uh, and I thought it was very much overdone. It's cheaper than that now. I think the valuation is attractive. I think the big question tomorrow morning we'll see is, is, is the evolution in their business with, um, what did I say, shipped, um, is the evolution of their business really going to hurt margins enough? Are they going to be able to stem the tide? Basically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we've seen that, that time and time again. Yes. And this right. is this is the metric people will focus on most for them tomorrow morning. Right. It's, and, you know, just purely from trading, it is at risk, right? Because back in January 10th, they reaffirmed their guidance, said comp sales were good for the holiday season. So now the question is, was that as good as it get? You know, a lot of it priced in. So I think it's smart move buying puts on this. So Target doesn't excite me. There's just not enough growth in the company. So if not um, Target, then what? I'd rather be in Dollar General. Okay. You know, at this stage of the cycle, they're going to see an increase in, in store traffic right now. They're in a lot of rural areas where there's not much competition. So I like Dollar General at this stage. I mean, I guess to me, the entire space is not a place I want to be. I'm, I'm worried about labor all costs. All of retail. I'm, yeah. Well, no, all, all of either uh, broad like lines, hard lines. Or, well, I mean, again, Target, Walmart, um, even Dollar General. I mean, I, I think if we were, we've been talking about the consumer tonight implicitly in every conversation. If anything, um, I think there's a lot of headwinds here um, that if anything would be in those stocks. But more importantly, there's so much competition. We are so overstored. Amazon is competing every day in the core businesses of every one of these guys because of that trillion-dollar consumables market that, that I think that they really have the driver's seat for. So um, I, I, I like Target relative to Walmart, um, but I, I really don't need to be in any of these names. If I'm going to be in kind of big box, I'll be in Best Buy, I'll be in Home Depot, I'll be in Lowe's. Those, to me, are differentiated business models and valuations. That are Is there concern about labor costs, Mark, when it comes to Dollar General, which I assume has very very, very thin margins with the price point it operates at? Absolutely. But, I mean, they're, they're doing such a good job managing their stores. They're, they're, when you look at um, them versus, like, uh, Dollar Tree, I mean, the, the amount of revenue they're getting per store is just so much more significant. So, yes, it, I think, you know, industry-wide it's an issue, but mm-hmm. I think they're more insulated. Walmart's the one for me that I would sell. I sell it once, and then when I'm done with it, I'd sell it again. It, it looks to me that it got very extended. The good news is out on that one, and I think you get out of it. All right. Thanks for the action, Mike Cohen, San Francisco. For more options action, check out the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, Final Trades. Quick programming note here. Tomorrow, Closing Bell will have three big airline executives on from Southwest, Delta, and United. All kicks off 3 p.m. Eastern time right here on CNBC. Time now for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour, what do you say? So great discussion tonight on peak auto, which which I think is really, again, a question more of where is the consumer at. But but in terms of the autos that I think are the, in the best position to execute and do have upside in terms of autonomous, uh, also I think GM has levers to pull as it relates to capital allocation back to investors. I actually think they're going to be raising their dividend free cash flow GM. I like it. 
Mark Tepper. The cost-conscious consumer means good stuff for the off-price retailer, so I like TJ Maxx. Chairwoman. Yes, we talked about FANG today. We talked about FANG with value. It's my biggest position, Alphabet. I think it, it doesn't get the love it deserves for sure. So many great businesses. Hopefully, with autos, we get some of that unlocked. Mm -hmm. But even without that, this is a superb business. Levers. 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 Levers is the metric term, and that's what people don't understand. So, <laughs> the metric system, you say levers. If you want leverage in the market, gearing. check out gearing. You can check out TLT to SPY. That ratio hit levels that we haven't seen until uh, uh, December. All right, that does it for us. Don't move. Mad Money starts right now.